Well, it's uh, been about three weeks now since we were back in um, Jerusalem and talking about the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. And, and so just as kind of a reminder, you know, the theme is this faith in a new world. And, and you know, to, to back up what had happened sometime around, um, you know, late 7th century into like early part of the uh, 6th century, Babylon had come to power, and then they had conquered the um, they had conquered the, the the Jewish people that were living in the southern tribes, and some of them had been taken into exile. And at first, you know, the people were were still allowed to live in Jerusalem and in the surrounding areas, but the Drew, the Jewish people kept rebelling and kept revolting, and eventually Nebuchadnezzar comes in, wipes them out. For about 70 years, they're living in Babylon, but Babylon was actually on its last legs, and Persia comes to power, and Persia takes over, and Persia's mentality towards the you know, conquered people was a little different than the Babylonians. Uh, the Babylonians thought, like, if we can take you know, displace people from their areas, if we can take the younger generations and train them to be Babylonian, then they'll, you know, we can create more unity um, across our, our empire. Uh, the Persians um, had a little different view where they thought, like, if we can establish, you know, in some of these lands, if we can establish people there who are, um, you know, who are, you know, just want to you know, live their lives, live out their culture, um, have their religion and everything else, that, that makes for a better empire. And so they would try to send people back, and they would try to actually help them. And so we, we read about that. After 70 years, this big wave of about, you know, 40 to 50,000 Jewish people return. The vast majority stay in Babylon, but a bunch of them, have, they return. And when they get back there, they, um, they you know, start to the sacrificial system again. They're trying to get life back to how it was. But they start to face opposition. And for whatever reason, um, it's about 20 years before they finally rebuild the temple. And then, a bunch of decades pass before we get to where we are in the story now. So they're there, they've started the sacrificial system, practicing their religion again, they've rebuilt the temple to, you know, even though it wasn't as good as it was before, but then they just kind of got caught up with living for whatever reason. Um, there may have been little attempts here and there, we get some hints in Nehemiah that there were some attempts to maybe try to rebuild the wall and then Maybe they faced opposition or um, just ran out of, you know, resources and didn't finish it. But Nehemiah is chosen by God to go back and lead a, a smaller group of exiles, but to go back and go and, and again, after over 100, maybe 150 years, return and finally get to finish these walls. And what we've found is that, that the, the theme here is to be faithful. Be faithful to the covenant in every situation. 
Be faithful if you're in Babylon. Be faithful when the Persians come. Be faithful if you've gone back to Jerusalem. Be faithful, you know, whether you're somebody who's a leader or somebody who's just there as one of the people. But the focus has been be faithful. Do not compromise. And all along the way, there's, there's temptation to compromise. There's so many different ways that they could, just, they could just give in, you know, kind of still follow the covenant, but not quite, you know, to the, to the letter. And so we have this, be faithful. Well, we're coming to this part in the story now where they're about to get about you know, to actually build the wall. But before we get there, you know, I just want to remind us of this, this uh, one of the things that I think is really important. And, and it's this idea that, um, you know, that we see in our kids. And I don't know what your children did when, you know, they were really young and then they started to get, you know, a little bit um, older and they could, you know, start talking and doing things. But, um, you know, one of my daughters, her way of telling us that she was ready to not be, like, uh, you know, taken care of as much, is she would say, I do. I do, I do. So, you know, if we had been feeding her and she was ready to grab that spoon, it was like, I do, I do. And she would grab the spoon. If she wanted to, you know, put on her her pants or her shirt and she got to the point where she could do it on her own it was I do I do right and as parents you know it's kind of happy sad we're glad because they're growing up and we don't we don't want to you know have to be feeding them with the spoon until they're 30 Um, so we're happy that that's happening but it's kind of sad too because you kind of liked when they were babies and you know you could you know, you're doing everything for them and taking care of them. But it's one of these things that we, you know, we, we kind of want that, you know, for our child to become more independent, to be someone who can say, I do, I do. I think the problem, though, is that, is that sometimes we want to push that too much. We, we want to kind of you know, get in people's, in, in, in our children's minds, and we get this reinforced in our culture that, that everything is about, about being as independent as you can be. And you might, hold on, i got a cough here. <coughs> you might think, what's, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with being independent? Because, you know, shouldn't that be like the goal in life? Shouldn't we not rely on one another, depend on one another? Well, I said this a couple, few weeks ago, and I'm going to say it again. If the most powerful being in the universe says, I want your help, why do so many of us Why do so many Christians insist on doing things on our own? If the most powerful being in the universe says, I want your help. There's something about being independent, but that's not the end. 
It's the end is not to become as independent and, and individualistic as you can. But we've kind of fed that to people. It comes out in different ways where you, you know, where we want to try to do everything ourselves or we don't think we can ask anyone else for help. As a matter of fact, we think it's a sign of weakness to, to admit that we need help. We might even have it as kind of a cultural thing of like, oh, you know, I, I don't want to be a burden to anybody else. There's so many reasons that, that we just insist. Sometimes it's just pride. It's just pride. We want, we want the credit. We don't want to, to share. You know, I, I coach track and field. I coach cross country. And I would love for, you know, me to be the only coach that helps my runners get better. But you know what? I don't, I don't feel threatened if they go, you know what? Um, I went to this running camp. Fine. You know why? It's going to make you better. I'm not here to, for, from, for myself to say, like, look at who I coached. No. I want you to get better. I might ask you about it. I might ask you, what are they doing? What are they training? How is it going to fit with what we're doing? But I want you to get better. Sometimes we just do these things because we want to be the ones. We're the ones who did it. Other times it's kind of a diff weird kind of form of blame, but I mean of pride, but we want to accept, you know, we're like, well, I'll be the one to blame. Sometimes it's just this idea of, of efficiency over doing what you're actually trying to accomplish. Efficiency over being effective. We do something in the most efficient way. Well, it all depends on, on what the job is. If the job is raising your children... Should you try to do everything in your household in the most efficient way? You know, we talked about this before. Like, if, you, if, if your job is, is just to make dinner for your family, then make dinner for your family. You do it in the most efficient way. If kids can help, have them help. If they can't help, stay out. If spouse can help, have them help. If not, stay out. It's about efficiency. But if it's about raising your children, you include them. You, you let them help even though it's not as efficient. I think, again, we get caught up in that. We think about what's going to make it work the best way, and we forget that there's something bigger. We're going to talk about this a little bit more in a bit, but they're building a wall. That's the job. But they're doing more than building a wall. They are building unity. They are building a society. 
And when we read this story, we're going to see the way that Nehemiah plans it. He doesn't just plan it in a way that's efficient. He plans it in a way that helps them identify themselves as the people of God. And so we have this spirit of individuality, this, this independence, wanting to do things our own way. Well, here we are at this story that Nehemiah, he's made this plan, and, 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 and if you remember last time, he was like going out at night and surveying everything and seeing what needed to be done. And the wall construction, it's about to begin. So in chapter 3, we're, just, we're not going to read it all. We're going to read about half of it. But I think it gives us a good idea about this plan. It says, Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priest, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zachar, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Barakiah, son of Meshezebel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Joyada, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besodea, repaired the gate of Yeshanah. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatia, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them Uziel, the son of Harhiah, goldsmiths repaired. Next to them Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, the ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Haramoth, repaired opposite his house. And next to Hattush, the son of Hashabaneah, repaired Melchijah, the son of Haram, and Hashub, the son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of half the district of, his, of Jerusalem, repaired, he and his daughters. I go, wow, that's a long list. By the way, it goes on for about 12, 13 more verses, more of the same. For us, not as meaningful. We don't know who these people are unless we've actually been to Jerusalem or we've you know, really studied the, the city in this time. We don't even know what these places are. It just seems like a, a list. But it is, it's important because they're listing each, each group, each family, 
All these people who helped. And this is going to be in their sacred scripture. Why? Because it's a reminder that God's work requires all of us to do our part. God's work requires all of us to do our part. You see, it wasn't enough just to build part of the wall. It's like, like a smart thing to have done might have been, let's just build, you know, just a section of the city at a time and close it so we're, we're safe and then try to build out from there. But no. This appears that this, a lot of this is happening, if not all of it, is happening simultaneously. He's bringing together all the people not just one gate at one time. Is this the fastest way to do it? Probably. It's not the easiest, though. But it's also doing something else. There's a picture that everyone is seeing. Not just their fellow Jewish people, but their enemies are seeing too. And what is this picture? One man comes to town, hundreds if not thousands have rallied to come build the wall, and they're doing it together. Could he have gotten a crew of the highly skilled you know, people to, to, to do this? Sure, he could have gotten the best you know, of the carpenters or you know, construction people to, to do what, what they needed, and they probably could have done a better job but he doesn't do it. He brings them, brings them all together. And they're all working together. And notice, it's everyone. They're not just giving you names. They're telling you who these people are and what, what they did. I mean, I might not have asked the perfumer to come out and help build walls because in my mind, the perfumer is better at, you know, selling perfume. I'm not sure what the perfumer did back in those days. But you would think, like, why is that person coming out? The perfumer might have been, like, saying, asking the same question. Why are you asking me? It's not my skill set. They're out there. How can this happen? How can you have all these teams out there working together? Well, it's because there was a plan and it was organized. And the plan allowed multiple teams to work together simultaneously. You can imagine if, if, you know, if you've ever had to like hang a door or, or do any kind of you know, construction on walls or anything like that, it just takes a, it to be a little bit off somewhere where it's a lot a bit off later on. And, you know, it's, if, if you have different people doing things at different times, then it's, you know, very likely that, you know, somebody could be building their wall and then somebody else is building their wall and they don't, they don't quite meet. Someone had to plan it. Someone had to organize it. Someone had to make sure everybody was... was was you know still following the plan, you know you know just not going like yeah 
that was the plan, but I think it would be really nice if we added a few extra things here. No, there's no unilateral action. Let me tell you and that one of the, the like, threats, and it's a kind of an unexpected threat because it comes from a good heart, one of the threats to, to a plan like this where the, the community is working together is when, when a well-meaning person does things unilaterally. Unilaterally means they just do it on their own. They mean well, but they just do it on their own. They don't check with anybody. They just do it. And it's, and it's a good thing that they're doing. It's well-intended. But it can cause a problem because what if what they did is actually what someone else was supposed to do? Or what if what they did doesn't quite connect with what someone else was, was, was doing? What if they're redoing something that was undone on purpose? You know, I kind of used this example at the deacons meeting on Monday. Like, if, if somebody goes out and, you know, like Patrick goes out and digs a hole because he's going to plant a tree out there. And then, you know, he has to leave, he goes, and then, and then I come along and I see... What is this hole doing, you know, in the middle of our playground? And I fill it in. I don't bother to ask anybody why there's a hole. I just fill it in, and I mean well. You know, it's deep enough. We could lose a couple preschoolers. That would be a bad thing. I meant well. But I didn't act as the community. I acted on my own. There's clearly a chain of command here. And, you know, we wish we had more details because just what we have here, we know that it was highly organized. So while God's work requires all of us to do our part, Nehemiah's part was to put the plan together. I'm sure he didn't do it alone. I'm sure he, he had a lot of input. There's nothing that tells us Nehemiah is this is this, you know, construction guru. If he's a good leader, what did he do? He consulted those who were the experts. But no, make no mistake, there's a plan. It's not just a free-for-all. But it's, the plan doesn't do anything the plan won't go anywhere if the people don't show up to do it. You can have the greatest plan in the world. I think the Bible has a great plan for who we are to be as a church. But if people don't show up to do it, it doesn't matter how good the plan is. Well, we also see again, I talked about the perfumers, we see the goldsmith. It's really shocking the first thing out of, the, you know, out of this chapter. The high priest. The high priest and the other priests. You know, um, I found this somewhat insulting when I actually worked for a, a Korean church uh, about 20 years ago. And um, they had a volleyball league. And 
So your church, when you played volleyball, if your pastor played, he didn't count as a player. You could have an extra player on the court. I thought like, wow, it's kind of insulting. (laughs) So instead of six, you could have seven. It's like, well, how do I feel about this? Well, look here. The priests are not treated like they're special. Not in this situation. They're given the assignments. You see, the priests aren't going to build all the wall. I think sometimes what happens in the modern church is we think it's the pastor and the, you know, the pastoral staff. It's their job to build the church. It's like, no. They do their part. It's not their job to build the church. It's the people's job. And that's what we see. They do their part. And they're listed there first. And then it starts to list these others. We, we see, you know, some of the rulers. That they're coming down and they're helping we also get hints of, of resistance. It says with the Tekoites, the Tekoites actually are given two sections. But they're nobles, they don't show up. And Nehemiah is okay with that. Nehemiah is okay with that. As a matter of fact, the, the, the principle for why Nehemiah is okay with that was in the previous chapter. It's a few weeks ago, we might have forgotten. But if you remember, like some of the enemies came along and said, we want to help. We want to help you do this. Nehemiah says, no. This is a job for the people of the covenant. It would have been different, I think, if some of the enemies had said, you know what? We want to make the covenant too with God. All right, come help. But they just wanted to help. He's like, no. And so when the nobles don't show up, and in fact, more than just the nobles don't show up, there's a lot of the, the, the Jewish people who've returned who don't show up to help. But when they don't, hope to, don't show up to help, Nehemiah doesn't go like, oh, let's go make them show up. No. He's saying, we will build with who God provides. Remember, The key is faithful. We will build with those who are faithful. Regardless of their status, regardless of their gifts, regardless of their position. And I want you to take special note in verse 12 because Nehemiah does. It says, Shalom, the son of Halahesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. And his daughters. Why? Don't know. Don't know if he didn't have sons. Don't know if he had sons, but his sons are like, we're not helping dad. Doesn't matter. This is the only place in this whole section where daughters are specifically mentioned, which tells you that it's probably the only section that was that was done by the daughters 
But why? Why can you include the daughters? Because the daughters were also people of the covenant. Everyone helps. Everyone who holds to the covenant can and will be used by God. Again, we're, we're looking at a wall being built, but keep in mind, it's more than a wall. It's more than a wall. This is God using this building of this wall to bring these people together and to unite them in a way that they, that they had never been united, not for a long, long time. But we do see, we see the nobles don't show up. We know some others don't show up. We don't really get any hints here of anything in the text that you know, people didn't finish their job. But we know that sometimes people just won't do their part. For whatever reason, maybe they think, I'm a perfumer, I can't build a wall. Maybe they think, I'm the priest, it's not my job. That's other people's jobs. But when any one of us doesn't do our part, someone else has to step up to do it. They have to step up to do it, or God's going to let the project fail. Wait, wait, if it's God's thing, how can it fail? God never fails. It's his power. He can't fail. God's not failing. If God has given this church a mission, and for whatever reason we fail to do the mission, God will still accomplish the mission. He'll just do it through someone else. God doesn't fail. We fail. But before that happens, what we, what we can see here is, you know what? People don't show up. I think some of those sections where it says, you know, one group had to deal with two sections. I think that's because there were people that didn't show up. And it wasn't, it wasn't so stressful. It wasn't so stressful that they, they couldn't finish the project. They do. And I think, again, that's what happens in, in church. Someone is not doing their part. Someone else can make up for the part. But eventually, something has to give. If we keep relying on a few to do the work of us all, something's going to give. And a lot of times, it's those among the few who get caught up in this thing that we sometimes call burnout. I don't think this percentage holds for our church. I think our church is actually above this percentage. But they, when they used to do like, like um, surveys of things and they would study churches, they would look at it and they would say only about 20% of a church was actively involved and sometimes the number would be lower. 20% would be doing the, the work that was required for 
20% can only carry for so long. But it's not just about protecting people. It's more than that. Remember, Nehemiah is not just building a wall. He's, he's building this unity, this spirit, this community. And the same thing with the church. It's not just about building programs. It's not just about having services. It's not just about building buildings or having a campus. No. It's about building the people of God, the community of faith. It's about us doing things and doing it together. That's a very basic foundational thing. It's us learning together, studying together. It's great that some of you study on your own. It's great, and I encourage you to study. You know, if, if you find another church that has a great Bible study, by all means, go. But don't do that in place of us studying and learning together. That's important. I love the group that, there's a group of about, I don't know, 15, 20 or so, maybe 30, who are here on Sunday, they come Monday night, and then they come Wednesday night. I don't want to offer Thursday or Friday because they might come then too. And, you know, and I'm the one teaching all of these things. But I love it because there's this learning and learning together. And we sometimes get caught up in this, this again, this independent, ind- I, I will study God's Word on my own. Oh, I'll listen to the pastor maybe. But it's me. It's my relationship. Great. Then you know what? Bless us with your maturity. Bless us with your insights. Bless us with your experience, your observations. Why are you just keeping it to yourself so you and God can have this special thing? Doesn't make sense. We learn together. Not because we teach better than anywhere else. It's because we're building a community. And part of that foundational to a community of disciples is that we study and we learn together. And we also do stuff together. Our, our church has begun to do even more, and, I'm, and you know, on Monday night at the deacons meeting, I challenged them to say, we need to find even more that we can do. God has blessed this church with people and with resources that are not just meant for us to keep to ourselves. What else can we do? Just throw something out there because I just heard about it this week. You know, I got a list of churches and needs that churches have. You know, and there's a, you know, there's a church out in Kahalu. They need help. They need help. Just, they have the money, but they don't, they don't have the ability, their expertise to, to repave their parking lot. All right. You don't want me doing it. Everything will be good. It's not going to be straight. They'll be redoing it next month. But do we have the ability to help? 
another church? You know, sometimes we, you know, some people get frustrated if they come to help with Next Step because there's so many people. I don't care. If we have a thousand people to do the job of 20, you know what? A thousand people can just hang out together and fellowship, get to know one another. It's more than just about the job. It's about what we're doing and what we're becoming as we learn and we serve together. See, this doesn't do much on Sunday morning because all of you are facing this way and other than the time when Phil tells you turn and look at each other, you don't really look at each other. Afterwards, if you hang around, time for us to talk and get to know one another, but a lot of times people have to, to take off. I loved last week, you know, I loved last week after Easter because, you know, we had the, the unintended benefit of having the photographs out there where people had to stand around and, and wait for their turn, and while they're standing, you know what, they're probably having longer conversations than they've ever had after church. It's great. Let's keep it up. But we, we have to do it together. It's not just about getting the job done. It's about how we do it. And that we do it together. And let me just remind you of this point. If you are doing something you feel whether it's in life or in ministry, that you have to do all on your own. It is not being done God's way. God didn't make His church that way, and He didn't make us that way. Again, the God who needs no help, ask us to help. What makes you think you're better than Him? Life was meant to be lived together. It was meant to be lived in a healthy community. And a healthy community doesn't mean that each one of us is perfectly healthy. In fact, none of us is perfectly healthy. But it means that each one of us comes together. And when we're focused on God's Word, when we're focused on living out what it says to be His people, His community, we're healthy. We're healthy when we start to realize that everything we do, whether good or bad, is connected to what everyone else does. It's not separate. If you do something positive, it's helping more than you, than you know. You know, I, the, the unseen, you know, children's workers downstairs. They're doing more than just helping the kids. More than, more than they might think that they're doing. Everything we do. But it works the other way too. When, when we don't do, when we don't do our part, when we don't step up, it either is going to get left undone and it's going to affect 
way more people than you might think. Or someone else is going to have to step up and do it, add it to their plate, or stop doing something else so they can do the thing that you were called and gifted to do. It's all connected. We're meant to live life together. I hope some of you are thinking, especially those of you who went to our Trinity conference, I hope some of you are thinking like, this is, this sounds like Trinity stuff. Yeah, it does. It really does. Because God Himself is Father, Son, Spirit. He's not presented to us as one single solitary figure. Who should we be? My encouragement to you is those of you who have been laboring with us, serving with us, learning with us, is that just keep, keep doing it. For everyone else, you know, I, I, I rarely recommend diving in. It comes from when I was a child. Um, I think it actually helped me to have a more cautious nature. But when I was a child, I went to a swimming pool. And I knew that I was three foot tall. And I saw that it was the three foot area of the pool. Logically, I should be able to go in there. And so I dove right in. I didn't know how to swim. Fortunately, someone pulled me out. So I'm not saying dive in. I'm saying take the next step, whatever the next step is. Maybe even coming Sunday morning, maybe the next step is join one of our Bible studies during the week. Maybe that's too big of a, too big of a step. Maybe, maybe just want to talk to me, ask some questions. Maybe you've been coming to Bible studies and you've been coming to worship and maybe you've never joined the church. Maybe that's the next step. Maybe you've been, you're part of the church, you, you're coming to stuff, but, you know, there's no place where you're giving back, where you're teaching, you're serving. Maybe that's it. Last week, we kind of resurrected, no pun intended, um, our Bible study and our uh, ministry you know, cards, and you can find them out in the foyer, and, and we gave them out in the bulletin, sent them home in the newsletter. You can also find them online, but it lists everything. You see things on there? There's several things we put a little asterisk by because those are things we really want to do, but we don't have people to do them. What's the next step? And by the way, for some of you, you just need to just keep coming and hanging out for a while. Because God's, God's only started to introduce you to what He's doing here. But those of you who are ready, What's the next step? I can't tell you what our church is. I can only tell you 
what I want our church to become. And I think we're it to some extent, but we're always going to be a work in progress. And that, that's that we are the body of Christ, united, working together, accomplishing kingdom purposes. 